we've got a uh, we've got a fun journey this morning. So Psalm 139, hear the word of the Lord. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's uh, be seated and um, let me pray for God's word. Father, we do ask right now that you would search us. You would use your word to divide and discern our thoughts and tensions. Lord, you would uh, use the scalp of your word to expose us, to show us our sins. But Lord, show us your grace and your beauty and your kindness and your love and your compassion and your forgiveness even more. Uh, Lord, we thank you that while the grass withers and the flowers fade, your word abides forever. And so we ask that you would speak through your word, even now, in the name of Christ. Amen. So I'm titling our sermon uh, this morning, Our Infinite and Intimate God. And I think that those two words really sum up what the psalmist David here is trying to communicate. That God is infinite in his knowledge He is infinite in his presence, and he is infinite in his power. Yet he's also intimate in all three of those ways as well. There's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the infinite, intimate God. And as you see, I have a a real clear, clean outline that's on the screen there for you to follow. Now, I say that somewhat in jest because the Psalms aren't always this clear and clean, and you can parse them just perfectly, because the Psalms are prayers. 
The Psalms are songs or hymns. They're the heart. I mean, this, is, this series is called The Prayer of the Psalms. This is David pouring out his heart. And so I even kind of hesitate to even throw up an, an, an outline for you because I don't want to communicate that everything is just pretty packaged in these psalms. I mean, this psalm is actually, even though it's one of the most well-known psalms for some of the verses that I've already read, it's actually kind of a, a confusing psalm. I mean, there are things in the psalm. There's David saying, where could I flee from, from your presence? Where shall I hide? Why is David, is David running from God? Is he, is he in fear of God? Is he really trying to flee God? Um, and then you get to verse 19, and he starts talking about God slay the wicked. I mean, what in the world? I didn't see that in my Precious Moments Bible growing up. I mean, that's just confusing. There's so much emotions. There's so many raw emotions that are tucked into this psalm. And I think that um, if you've been with us reading through and preaching through the psalms, listening as the psalms have been preached, you see that the psalms, uh, whether it be David or whoever's writing it, I mean, it's a roller coaster. And it's just like you and me. Because in one moment, we have a tendency to want to flee God. Another moment, we're crying out to him. We're all over the map. And God knows that, and David understood it, and he presents that to us here today. So, despite the uh, topsy-turvy roller coaster ride, I do want to lay out this outline for you to help you walk through, because it's a long psalm. There's a lot here. So, for the sake of teaching, let's jump in um, into this um, outline here, that God is first all-knowing. Verses 1 through 6 lay this out, that God is omniscient. It's kind of a fancy word for God is all-knowing. God is infinite in his knowledge, yet he's intimate in his knowledge about me and about you. He's infinite. There's no, there's no limit to God's knowledge, but he's very intimately involved in his knowledge about you and me. This is what David says when he begins the psalm. He says, you have searched me and you have known me. Right? Not, not too complicated words there. You have searched me of God. You've explored me. You've spied me out. You've investigated me. You know me. You've parsed me. That idea of known is very intimate language, as some of you probably know in the scriptures. To know someone is to know them intimate. God knows us in a very intimate way. How does God know us? Let's talk about the omniscience of God. Well, first, he searches and knows your behavior and my, my behavior. We see this in verses two and three. David says, when I sit down, when I rise up, when I go on my path, you are acquainted with all of my ways. What David is saying is that God has full knowledge of all of our actions and our behavior. God has full knowledge of every single thing that you do. Everything, every single thing you have done, are doing, and will do in your life. God has full knowledge. God sees all of our ways, even when we are alone and acting in secret. There is not one thing that you've done that God does not know. How are you feeling so far about this psalm? Right? We kind of gulp a little bit when we hear that. It's what David is saying. God knows us better than we know ourselves. But he gets even more intimate as it goes on. Not only does God know every action, every behavior of us, but God searches and knows your thoughts. 
Okay, oof. He says, you discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it altogether. What he's saying is, you know it completely, God. Now, now you start to feel a little nauseated, right? Okay, let's be honest, right? We are completely naked and vulnerable before God. And our actions and our behavior and our thoughts and even the words that are about to come out of our mouth, God knows. God knows us inside and outside. Even when we're about to say something really nasty to that person that drives us crazy and we stop ourselves and we go, whew, God knew it. God knew exactly that word that was on the tip of your tongue. God knows you better than you know yourself. He is God. And I believe that this is what Jesus is getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry in his heart with his brother will be liable to judgment. He says, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, your heart and your actions are important to God, and God knows both of them perfectly, infinitely, and intimately. He goes on, David, in verse 5, he says, you hem me in behind and before. It's this idea of a city being besieged. You know, David, David is, is experiencing the fact that God knows his thoughts, he knows his, his words, he knows his heart, and he's feeling somewhat hemmed in by this incredible omniscience of God. And then he goes in verse six and he says this, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Now, maybe David is, is speaking out of praise. Maybe he's speaking out of conviction. You know, in one sense it's comforting. In another sense it's scary. Because he's standing before God or God's standing before him and he says, I know you. And he's filled with such incredible conviction, such incredible awe. He just says, I, I can't even comprehend that that you know me in, in such a way. And this is that infinite and intimate roller coaster emotions that, that you see in the psalm and that we all experience, even in our own Christian life, if you're in Christ. This mixture of emotions. God is all-knowing. But then he goes on and he, and he talks, 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 starts talking about God is also all-present. We see this in verse 7 and 12. And it gives more context for verse 7 after understanding that David is standing before God and he's fully exposed and God knows his thoughts, words, and deeds. And then verse seven, he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Now, I think usually we, we hear this and we just think that it's, it's, he's finding comfort in it. And he may be, there's again, a mixture of emotions, but there's also a sense in which he's, he's nervous. He's exposed. Again, he's vulnerable. You know, this, this may not be the, the, the just clear, simple sort of cuddle hug from God when you read this, this verse. It produces more conviction. And the fact that God infinitely and intimately knows me. It could be what Adam and Eve experienced, right? When they fell into sin, what did they do? They ran and they hid away from the presence of God. This is the exact same language that is used in Jonah, right? Jonah is the prophet that God called him to go to his enemies, go to the Ninevites, he said no, and what did he do? He fled the presence of God. Same language here. So it starts to make you kind of wonder, is there a sense in which David's experiencing conviction? 
He knows he's exposed before God. And so there's that, there's that thought of, I, I, I know I can't flee from you, Lord, but where could I flee from you? Because I'm absolutely naked and vulnerable before you and your omniscience and your omnipresence. Think about a, a shy child. So a child who's shy, right? And they come before someone and, and she doesn't want to be seen. What does she do? She puts her hands in front of her face, right? And she thinks, if I, if I put my hands in, 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 in front of my face and I can't see that person, then, then they can't see me, right? And I wonder if that's the posture of our hearts sometimes as God's children. When we're engaging in our rebellion, and our disobedience. We can just just hide ourselves from God, try to flee from God's presence, thinking that he cannot see us. But David says, "Uh uh-uh. He sees every single thing you do because he's present everywhere, all the time and all of time. None of us can run from the presence of God. David goes on in this passage, and he starts using this... uh, language of, of where God is. He says in verse eight, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you are there. And what David is trying to say is he's saying, you know, if I go to the heavens, Lord, you are in the north. If I go down to Sheol in the grave in the south, you are in the south. If I go to the morning where the sun rises, you're in the east. If I go to the sea, the Mediterranean, which is west of Jerusalem, you are there too, God. Right? He's drawn a compass for us saying that God is everywhere at all times, completely present. There is no running from God. Yeah, it's important for us to understand that God's presence is not spread out and it's not stretched out in parts over a particular space. No, God is completely present everywhere at every time. Let me see if I can explain. Okay, we live in Florida, so we all know what termites do, okay? And we know that the destruction that, that termites can do, and we know the importance that every now and then, unfortunately, we got to put that big tent over our house, and we got to treat for, for those termites. And so I had to have that in my home uh, a, a few years back, but every year we have someone come out and inspect. And the guy who came out to inspect was explaining to me how it all worked, and we all see the tent that's over it, but he's explaining to me that that deadly poison, that deadly gas that's going in, which we see the signs don't enter because it could kill you. He said that deadly gas is going into every nook and cranny, including the pinholes that those termites make. And you start seeing some wood shavings, things like that, and they're pushing out. It goes in those pinholes. It goes through all the channels that the termites make and kills them, fills it up completely. And in one sense, the gas goes everywhere. It permeates everything. But it, it's actually the molecules of the gas is actually breaking apart, and it's spreading apart here and there and here and there. And the guy was, was, was telling me, he said, we actually have to put these fans in there because this deadly gas is actually slightly denser than air itself, so it tends to fall down. So the fans have to keep pushing the air up. We ought not to think about God as, as gas that fills a room and breaks apart and moves in this little nick, nook and cranny, but it breaks up here. No, no, no. God is not like that. God is completely present at all time, everywhere. 
There's no splitting of God's presence. God's not partially in China, partially in Parker Street, and partially in Alabama. No. He is completely present everywhere at all times. Not broken up, not spread out, not extended out, but perfectly present everywhere. There's a shift in this psalm. And even as I was reading it, some of y'all caught that and I could just hear the shift in the psalm. David is standing before the all-knowing God, the all-presence God, all-present God, and there's a sense in which he is completely reverent, completely worshipful, but completely, completely convicted and exposed. And then in verse 10, I want you to notice this shift if you're looking at your scriptures. He says, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. This is where the intimacy of God meets the infinity, the, the infinite God. Even in the midst of being exposed and feeling exposed before a holy, infinite God, there's a sense in, in which David wants to flee to the presence. He's, he's, he, he wants to flee from it in one sense because he's, he's afraid, but in another sense he wants to run to God because he knows God, God is good. It's this whole mixture of emotions that all of us have experienced. David knows the goodness of God. He knows the protection of his creator. And he knows that God has never left him and left his presence, has always held his hand, even though he has been stripped and exposed before a holy God. Children, um, and I know this may not be true for everyone, but for a lot of us, you know, when we are caught and, you know, we've sinned and we've, 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 we've disobeyed, there's a sense of conviction and there's a sense of shame. There's a sense of wanting to want to run away from the presence of a family member that has authority over us. But there's also a sense in which we know that family member loves us and cares us and we want to run to their mercy and we want to run to their protection. And that's exactly what David's experiencing right here. I'm ashamed, I'm embarrassed, I'm overwhelmed, but at the same time, I know that you are good. And I know that you have not stopped holding my hand in the midst of this roller coaster of emotions. This quote is used so much, and it's, it's somewhat overused, but it, it, it illustrates what we're talking about here, that C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia, when um, Aslan, this lion uh, of the story, who's the Christ-like figure, is being introduced to Lucy, and she's talking to Mr. Beaver, and Mr. Beaver is trying to, she, she's trying to figure out who is Aslan, and, and, and Susan, uh, I said Lucy, uh, Susan says, um, oh, is he, I thought he was a man, is he quite safe? She said, I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is not safe in the sense that man can tame the omniscience and omnipresence of God. But he is good, and he is king, and he is your protector. He is your refuge. He is the one that is holding your hand, even as you are rejecting him. How are you feeling before the presence of the all-knowing and all-powerful and all-present God even now? Some of you may have been tempted before we're looking at this to think, well, you know, I, I, I'm not that bad. I, you know, I, I haven't killed anyone. I, you know, I try to be good. That, that, that my behavior is not as bad as that person. 
But then you come before and you realize, well, no, 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 God just doesn't know my actions. He knows my thoughts. He knows my heart. He knows that word is about to come out of my mouth, and we start to feel, okay, maybe I'm worse than I thought. Imagine if uh, your every thought, every action, everything that you wanted to communicate even now was being projected on these screens, we would recoil and run. God sees all that. God knows all that. We are all exposed. We are all found out. And in this cancel culture that we live in, we would tremble to think that we could have any kind of success or any kind of uh, job or family or any kind of reputation in this community if people were to know the things that we think often, the things that we do, the things that we want to say, and yet the gospel is anti-cancel culture because God has complete knowledge complete, intimate, infinite knowledge of who you are, what you have said, what you will say, and what you're going to say, and is completely present in everything you do, and he still says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. That's what's remarkable about the gospel. Be one thing if we were good people and God said, yes, come and have a relationship with me, but the word makes it very clear. No, none of us are good. No one is righteous. And we all know that because we'd all be totally embarrassed if everything was projected on these screens right now. And God says, I see that screen of your life and I'm saying, come, I welcome you into my presence. I love you. That very catechism question that we just looked at, it's not by our good works. It's by his grace that he accepts us and loves us. That's what's so beautiful about the gospel. God doesn't say, come, he doesn't say, you have to clean yourself up first and then come to me. Just think about that. If God sees everything, he totally sees you exposed and naked, why would God say, okay, now put on some, some, some clothes of your works and actions and see if I'll, I'll now accept you? No, God has seen you in your worst. And he says, come now just as you are. This is my work and my righteousness and not yours. So don't run from God. I know there's that, that temptation, tendency, as you're hearing the scripture to go, I, I I'm exposed. I want to run. I want to, I want to hide in the bushes. I want to do what Adam and Eve did. No, no, no. God says, don't run from me. Come to me. There is no refuge from God, but there is refuge in God. I'll say that again. There is no refuge from God. You can't hide from him, but there is refuge in him. And this is what the psalmist says in Psalm 46, 1 through 2. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in trouble. So God is all-knowing, he's omniscient. God is omnipresent, he's ever, he's all-present God. And finally, we see that God is all-powerful. We see this in verses 13 through, through 24, and I won't be able to spend as much time as I wish I could here, but I just want us to look at a couple things, that God is all-powerful over life and death, and God is all-powerful over evil and suffering. We see this in verses 13 through 18, that God is all-powerful over life and death, that God knows us better than we know ourselves because he created us. And he's always been present with us from our mother's womb. That's what the psalmist says. From the very beginning, from the mother's womb, God has always been present with us, that God has always been active in our lives as our unformed substance in our embryo 
as it grew and developed. That he is the one that has, has, has woven us together. He is the one that has created us. He is the one that has formed our, our inward parts. Look at verse 15. He says, my, my frame or my bones and skeleton was not hidden from God. Verse 13, he says, you knitted me together like a multicolored piece of cloth or a fine needlepoint. He takes our, our, the threads of our veins and our arteries and our muscles and our tendons and he wove us together. He, he put us together in a beautiful tapestry and a beautiful picture. We are wonderfully and fearfully made because we're made in the image of God and he is one to be feared and revered and one to be wondered, filled with wonder. So God is all-powerful over life and our death, that God has actually numbered our days. And we, sometimes we, we, we use that as a threat, right? We're angry at someone, your days are numbered. You know, no, God has numbered our days and that he knows exactly the days that he has for us on this earth. He says in verse 16, in your book were, were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. What David is saying is that the, the precise length of, of his life was determined by God before he was even born. There's no change in the number of days. Every single day on earth is ordained by God. Every single one of your days on this earth is ordained by God. From your mother's womb to, to your final days. Verse 18 is really interesting. It kind of seems like it stands out. The, the scholars, you know, realize, they, they look at verse 18, and we've already talked about when I, when I get up, when I rise up, and when I sleep. And so here he says, um, in the latter part of verse 18, I awake, and I am still with you. What is that all about? Well, scholars think that this is David speaking about death and resurrection. You may say, well, I mean, this is before Jesus. Certainly he didn't think that he was going to rise from the dead. Well, no, I mean, if you... Remember the story when David loses his son. He prays for his son, and he desperately wants his son to live, but in God's providence, his son doesn't live. And what does he say in 2 Samuel 12, 23? He says, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David believed in the resurrection. And here he's saying, listen, God, you have ordained my days from my mother's womb to the, to, to, to the time that I fall asleep, but then awaken in your glory and in your presence. This is why we as the church look at abortion and euthanasia and, of course, murder and suicide as an absolute rejection of what God's word says. And I know I may lose some of you by saying that, but, but this isn't about politics. This is about what God's word says. That God's word is the ultimate authority that is in our life. And what God's word is saying is that God has complete authority over our bodies. God has complete authority over our life. He is the one that has woven us together from our mother's womb. He was present and knowledgeable of who we were from the beginning of our life until our, our dying day. Scripture has to have the final authority. We must interpret our culture through the lens of Scripture and not the other way around. This is what God's word is saying about our life, about his presence and knowledge and the preciousness of it that we are fearfully and wonderfully made.
So God has ultimate authority and power over life and death, and God has ultimate authority and power over evil and suffering. And this is in the scripture where it just shifts in verse 19 through, through, through 24. It seems really like it's not in place here. But David was constantly being, uh, uh, you know, hiding from enemies. He was constantly being chased down from people, whether it be Saul or his son trying to kill him. And so we assume in this context, he's, he's running. He's hiding from, from, from an enemy. And he is, he is demonstrating what we call righteous anger, right? We can actually have anger and not sin. The apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, 26, he says, be angry and do not sin. And so David is, is demonstrating here this righteous anger. He's filled with the holiness of God and reverence for God and who God is. And he is running away from enemies, but yet he is saying, listen, God, you know, this is for you. Righteous anger is when I am angry because God is not getting what he wants and he deserves. That's righteous anger. Sinful anger is I'm angry because I'm not getting what I want and I think I deserve. And so what David is laying out here, he's laying out this passionate plea that God deals with his enemies because they're, they're blaspheming God, profaning God, being God deserves all glory. And so he's demonstrating this righteous anger. But there's such a fine line between righteous anger and sinful anger that I cross so often. And David is aware of that. Look how he ends the psalm in verse 23 through, through, through 24. He says, search me. Try me. Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. See, David's aware that, that he has that tendency, like I do, to quickly cross over from righteous anger into sinful anger. And David says, listen, and it's full circle, right? This whole psalm begins with, you have searched me and you have known me. And in the beginning of the psalm, it's kind of like, this is, this is a little, I'm a little nervous because you know me. And now David's full circle saying, I trust you, God, because you're holding my hand. Now I want you to search me. Because I know my tendency in my heart is to be evil and is to be sinful. The heart is deceitful above all things. I know my tendency is to want to show sinful anger. And so, God, even in my efforts to hold up your name and show righteous anger, I need you to search me and sift through my heart and make sure that I'm not falling into evil. And he says something in these verses that really kind of caught us off guard. In verse 21, he says... I hate those who hate you, and I hate with complete hatred. There is a shift in the New Testament where Jesus says in Matthew 5, again in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. What's the difference? Where's the shift here? It sounds, you know, David's zeal for God is very similar to James and John. There's a story when, when uh, Jesus is rejected by a village, and James and John look to Jesus and say, hey, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and just kill them all? And Jesus looks at him and says, what? You know, that's my paraphrase. Have you lost your mind? You don't know what you're talking about. Where's the shift? Where's the shift from David and James and John saying, let's get it done, let's take them out, and Jesus saying, no, 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 I want you to bless your enemies, I want you to pray for those who persecute you, I want you to love them. 
Well, the shift is in what Jesus has done for us. The shift happens at the cross, right? It's at the cross that the infinite God and the intimate God come together. That the infinite God would become intimate and he would, he would in, in, incarnate himself. He would, he would come down in the flesh. He would move into our neighborhood to live a perfect life, to fulfill the law perfectly and go to the cross. And Jesus would actually pray on the cross for those who were killing him saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. What is Jesus doing there? What Jesus is experiencing the cross in addition to the painful physical death, is Jesus is experiencing that very fire that James and John wanted to call down upon himself from the wrath of God. That God is pouring out his hatred against sin, the sin that's in my heart that he sees, the sin that's on my tongue that I want to say, the sin that's in my hands as I carry out the action, that Jesus himself is actually absorbing the wrath and the punishment that I deserved on the cross that Jesus is actually being treated as an enemy to God in my place. To the point that the presence of God is removed from Jesus on the cross and darkness covers him. And see, in our life, he goes on and says, in the darkness, you are there. But in the darkness of Jesus, the Father let go of the hand of the Son. And he had to do that. That's the only way that you can come to God the Father as holy, just as you are. That's the only way you can come messed up, broken, and naked, and and, and exposed. The only way you can do that is if there is a substitute who stands in your place, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why he came. He came to be your substitute, to stand in your place, and take upon your punishment so that you can now come to Jesus just as you are and say, Jesus, I need you. Clean me, make me new, give me a new heart. And this is the call of the gospel, and that's exactly what Psalm 139 is calling you to do right now. Don't run from Jesus. Run to him because his grace and his arms are wide open because he has done all that work for you. It's by his performance, his work, that you have a relationship with the infinite and intimate God that we serve, amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that we can come into your presence because of Christ and what he has done, that we don't have to uh, try to find refuge from you, but we have refuge in you. And Jesus, you are all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-present everywhere at all time. And thank you that you love us more than we can fully comprehend because you know us more than we know ourselves. And Lord, I pray that uh, if there's anyone here that is running from God and is afraid of God because they see their sin and have not run to you, Lord Jesus, in grace that today would be the day of their salvation, knowing that there is love and mercy, that if we are faithful, that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us. And we love you and we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.